And so Abraham, in what is we saw, or what was a faithless act of fear, uh, leaves the land of promise because of the difficulty of famine and goes to Egypt, a place of slavery, and exploits his wife sexually so that he could have security and blessing through his morally dubious plans. Well, the Lord intervened, as we saw last week, and Abraham is brought back to a place of worship this week and reconstituted as God's elect man. So, I'm going to read the whole chapter, chapter 13, so I encourage you to read with me that chapter as we look at Abraham as he takes a a turn, uh, he turns the corner here and is reconstituted, I think, as an example for us. And so I want to look at Abraham with an eye towards his reconstitution being brought back to worship. So, beginning in chapter 13, verse 1, the text reads, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land, the land, could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes, and he saw the Jordan Valley, that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look at the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the land, and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. 
So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Aspiration is what this passage is about, as I see it. Or that's what I'm warned about when I read this passage. Aspiration in the dictionary means to long for something, to aim or to seek ambitiously, to be eagerly desirous, especially for something great or of high value, to aspire for something. Now, there's nothing wrong with aspiration aspiration necessarily. Aspiration can be a good thing. You can aspire to be a good man in the Lord. You can aspire to be a good woman in the Lord. You can aspire to be a good husband, a good father, a good Christian. But very often, the world puts before you what it wants you to aspire for. Now, I was talking to my um, sister-in-law, Kayla, and she's a, she's a marketing consultant, and she told me that actually, in marketing, there's a term called aspirational marketing. And what the what the commercializers do is they place before you the good life. In aspirational marketing, they put before you the good life so that you're drawn to that picture. And they say, if you want this good life, what you'll give us is your money to buy this thing so that you can have this good life too. It's aspirational marketing. Now I actually looked up a definition, the technical definition of aspirational marketing is very interesting. <clears throat> it says, it said, an aspirational brand is a term in a consumer marketing for a brand or product which a large segment of its exposure audience wishes to own. The premise of this type of marketing is that purchase decisions are made at an emotional level to enhance one's own self-concept. That means one's own concept of themselves. Now that I have this thing, I have a better concept of who I am because I indeed, like them, have the good life or I'm getting closer to the good life because of this product which I've given my money for. That's marketing. And I want to suggest to you that Satan and the world is an aspirational marketer um, that puts before you the good life and doesn't ask for your money necessarily. Whereas a marketer is going to say, if you want this good life, you're going to give me your money for this product. The world is going to say, if you want the good life, then you're going to give me your affections, your energy, and your desire to get it. That is what, that is what um, John Piper was talking about in his seashell sermon, which many of you know. The world is putting before you a product of the good life, of easy retirement, an ease of life, and it's trying to get you to buy it and trade in that which is much, much more valuable, eternally more valuable for what is 
cheap and passing away. Now, aspiration, that's the problem. In this passage, then, um, you see Abram and Lot separated. But that separation, I think, represents two spiritual trajectories. Abram, this time reconstituted as an example and man of faith, acts in a calm, non-anxious, trusting way. And Lot, on the other hand, seeing with the eyes, with natural eyes, the eyes of aspiration, makes his way to the gate of hell in Sodom. Now, it's almost a parable. This, pa this passage is theological history, certainly, but it is almost a parable because the Word of God is deep. And you can see the structures of the human psyche and soul in it. So, the problem is, your problem and my problem is that our tendency is to aspire for a blessing or security or gain without reference to God. So, my suggestion is that because God, though, has promised you everything, in Christ Jesus. You and I, as Christians, because he's given us these definite promises, you and I as Christians, promises about this life and thereafter. All the promises of God found their yes in Jesus Christ. Amen? Because he's done that, and he's promised to never leave you or forsake you, if you have faith in him, and he promises that he will supply your needs. If he clothes a flower, he's going to clothe you, right? That's what Jesus said. Since we have, and, and after life, we, he promises you that when you die, Christ will be there to take you in to his heavenly kingdom. So that pretty much covers everything you need to know. He's going to supply everything you need He's going to take you to his heavenly kingdom. Because you have these definite promises, you are free, Christian, to live a life of settled rest in God. A non-anxious, settled rest in God. So, I think, first of all, Abram is a model of faith for walking with, a model of Walking with eyes of faith. I want to talk about eyes of faith and eyes of aspiration for a minute. Abram, in this passage, is an example of walking with eyes of faith. Now, eyes of faith, first of all, for a Christian, means worship. It always means worship. Notice where God brings Abram when he comes out of Egypt. So God had to intervene put plagues on Pharaoh, if you remember last week. And in verse 3, God brings him back to the very place where he left before. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there he called upon the name of the Lord. So Abram is brought back to a place of worship 
calling on the name of the Lord in the exact location that he was before he left in fear for Egypt. So, the eyes of faith always means being brought back to a place of worship. And it's so interesting, this foreshadows Abram's descendants. Because Abram's descendants are going to, are going to be in, find themselves in Egypt again. And God will intervene again, sending plagues on a pharaoh again. And bring them out of the land again, with great wealth, again. And bring them to a place where they have an opportunity to worship. So this prefigures the exodus. The actions and deeds of the descendants are prefigured in their father Abraham. So faith always entails worship for a Christian. Second of all, eyes of faith means that you see times of trials as times of testing, not just inconvenience. Because immediately after being brought back to the land of promise, worshiping what happens in this chapter, he's immediately brought back to a place of worship and dependence. Great! This is fantastic. Abraham is brought back. You and I often brought back to a place of dependence and worship. And what happens immediately after that in this narrative is another trial. In verse 5, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. So Lot is Abram's nephew. He is also very wealthy. And I find it so interesting that the text itself puts the blame for lack of a better word, on the land. So first there's a famine in the land that God promised Abram. And he responded with fear and went to Egypt. Now, the land again cannot support Lot and Abram. So the problem is the land again. What seems to be the problem, at least, is the land again. Um, Derek Hidner an Old Testament scholar said in his commentary, with the promised land failing him again, first famine and now not enough room for resources because it's him, Lot, and if you look down in verse 7, Perizzites and Canaanites are in the land as well. And they've got sheep, they've got people, and there's not enough resources in the land to support them all. This is a dry country. So, with the, promise, with the promised land failing him again, this time, what must have seemed a permanent inadequacy, the common sense course was to abandon it for something more fertile. So Abram is tested again to abandon the land. Yes, he's brought back to a place of worship again, but there's a problem in the land. First there was famine. Now there's a lack of resources. So what is Abram going to do this time? That's a question the reader should be asking. Now, I think, by the way, side note, 
you are going to have tests in life. And your trials and your, and your difficulties in life, if you're a Christian, you should see as an opportunity to demonstrate fidelity and trust in the Lord. Redeem those difficulties for an opportunity to demonstrate trust, dependence, and desperate clinging to the Lord. God is a tester, and he's going to test Abram again. He's going to put Abram to the test again with Isaac. And just to forecast in chapter 22, Abram's going to willingly offer his son to the Lord in this what must have been to him a bizarre request. But Abram's faith was being tested all along. And the text says, 22.12, the Lord stopped him and says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld your son from me. Do you want to prove... A trial and a difficulty is an opportunity to prove to the Lord your trust in Him, your obedience to Him, and your faithfulness to Him. So see difficulties not just as an inconvenience, but as an opportunity for a Christian. Not that God doesn't know these things. Of course He knows. But He puts you to the test to give you an opportunity to demonstrate your obedience, your love, and your commitment to Him. So I want to say as, you're, as a Christian, redeem those opportunities. Take them, embrace them, and prove your love and fidelity to Christ. Now, by seeing with the eyes of faith, we can move forward confidently that God will provide us, provide for us. What does Abraham do with the problems in the land? He does not anxiously um, seek for, for more fertile territory this time. He doesn't formulate some morally dubious plan that puts his family in danger again. In fact, this time he seeks for peace. He remains in the land and seeks peace among brothers. In this passage here, in chapter, uh, verse 8, the passage reads, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Interestingly, the text reads, literally in Hebrew, Let there be no strife, because we are men, brothers. We are men, brothers. That's what the text literally reads in Hebrews in Hebrew. And it probably gives the sense of men should not strive and quarrel like this, let alone brothers. We're men brothers. So let there be no strife between us. Pause there again. What is our default posture when there is strife? Is it to embrace the controversy or is it to say, let there be no strife between us because we are men, brothers. I know of ministries which are built on the platform of controversy among brothers, interestingly enough. And in, and in our very, very polarized 
culture right now, whether it's politics, spirituality, or anything in between. Don't think that those ministries are necessarily have a corner on the truth. It seems to me that they are imbibing the culture that they're in. What I get from the text is things like James saying, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What I get, what I see, is Jesus saying, blessed are the peacemakers, not those who want peace and create chaos, but blessed are those who make peace, who want it and make it. Now, that being, you good on that? We're good on that? Peace is, is a good thing, right? With shalom, God is bringing peace to the earth. Um, so, I think Abraham is a good example here of what men brothers should do in conflict. However, having said that, very often, wisdom is going to entail that you don't avoid conflict, but that you do go into conflict. Um, in the next chapter, next week, I'm going to talk about Abram taking 300 men, going and slaughtering a bunch of guys to rescue Lot. I'm going to argue that that's a good thing. But it's because that he was a brother with Lot. And he's saving a brother out of problem. So this is not an avoid conflict at all costs ethic in the Christian life. That's not what we're saying. We're not pacifists. Or we should not be pacifists. We should stand up and take a firm position. However, what I'm talking about is your default posture when there is conflict among brethren. And I think Abram is a good model for us here for what men brothers should do with one another. Avoid conflict through separation, if necessary. So Abram here, I think, is a model for walking with eyes of faith instead of eyes of anxiety. Um, he doesn't flee to another land. He doesn't strive with Lot for the most fertile territory. But he seeks peace among brothers and trusts God to graciously provide from his providential, promising hand. That's what I see Abraham doing in this passage. And I think this is the key to a non-anxious life. I, anxiety, from my understanding, anxiety, depression is on the rise. And we could point to a lot of things, a lot of things. And I, I think it has to do a lot with, with the news, social media, the fact that we always have a, a blue screen in our face. I think a lot of these things contribute to anxiety in our life. But um, the key to anxiety, non-anxiety, is to have just a posture of almost naive trust in the Lord. Um, I think that's what Jesus is getting at. In the Sermon on the Mount. Let's go to, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 6, 25. Matthew 6, 25. What kind of life is Jesus inviting you to? One is anxious, looking for self-promotion, looking for you to, you to secure your own security and blessing in life? I don't think so, Christian. 
I think you're called to a non-anxious, peaceful, confident, settled rest in God, whom Jesus says is in fact your Father through faith in Him. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, um, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not your life more than food, and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And now are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single, single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. There's a promise from Christ to live a non-anxious life because God is going to supply what you need. Now, if anxiety arises, it could be because eyes of aspiration are looking beyond what you need. Raising your anxiety to get it. Because, after all, the world and Satan himself is an aspirational marketer. So, you can choose in life to trust that the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. You can choose to believe that God works all things together for good for those who love him. You can believe that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. And you can trust that God will provide all your needs. Or, you could feed your anxiety. And you could choose to question and even reject those theses in Scripture. And you could choose to be anxious and protective and clamor towards gain and, self, and selfishness and anxious self-promotion. And I want to say beware of doing the latter. Psalm 131 is one of my favorite psalms because it teaches me to not be anxious but content in the Lord and His provision. Psalm 131 says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great are too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. The picture there is rest like a child with its mother, just being content with the presence of God, with the provision of God, in a non-anxious, non-desperate manner. That's Abraham, and I think that's a good model for walking in a settled rest in the Lord. Now you have Lot, and Lot is a paradigm, I believe, for moving forward with eyes of aspiration. 
In the passage, the narrative places special emphasis on what Lot saw in verse 10. So choose. Go ahead, Lot. Choose the land you want. In verse 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. He lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was good. It was watered well, like the garden of the Lord, like Egypt was. So clearly the promised land, the promised land where they were, wasn't really desirable to the eyes, which is very interesting. What Lot did was he looked towards the east in the Jordan. He lifted up his eyes of aspiration, of security, and he went in that direction. And interestingly enough, that direction is not just a geographical direction, it is a spiritual direction. Verse 11, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Amazingly, Lot journeyed east. Now, when you travel east in the Bible, you're traveling in the wrong direction. Because east is a direction of separation from the Lord. In Genesis 3.24, when, when, um, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, a cherubim is placed at the east side of the garden. Genesis 4.16 Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So the eastward direction represents departure from God. It represents a spiritual trajectory away from the Lord. And that is the very trajectory Lot takes for himself here. He travels eastward, and the text says he continues east as far as Sodom. Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom, which is ominous. Because we are told just a few verses before that this is before the Lord destroyed Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. As I see it, not even questioning motivation, but as I see it, Lot is a model for what it looks like to, follow, to um, live by the lust of the eyes. Eyes of aspiration. And eyes of aspiration are utterly deceptive because as he is going to a land that is fertile, there's lots of grass for his sheep, there's cities and there's nightclubs there, whatever there might be. As he's traveling into these things, he's actually traveling away from the presence of the Lord. Calvin, John Calvin in his commentary says, Lot's when he fancied he was dwelling in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. So things are not obviously always as they seem. And while the grass was greener on the other side, 
It was not evergreen on the other side. It was not eternally green on the other side. And Lot's life is thrown into disrepair because of this move. He will have to be rescued. He will, in a very sordid way, father the enemies of Israel later in Genesis. Just because something is good to the eyes, obviously Christian, does not mean it is good for the soul. Anyone, there's a great movie, um, foreign film, called Ash Lad. And Ash Lad is a, it's just a good, kind of like a Lord of the Rings feeling movie. And there's this great scene where these three young men are on a road and they look at these, they find these beautiful apples on the road. And they eat these beautiful apples that are golden and red. And it's supposed to be a parable for things aren't always what they seem. But what happens is this clouds their vision. This clouds their vision. And in the movie, what happens are these um, three goblin-like looking women come and they're dining with these women, but they can't see what's real. They, they see beauty in these women. They, 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 what they see is they're a very attractive woman, and they're eating great food, but in reality, they're goblin-looking like creatures, and they're eating worms and dirt. It's, very, it's a really interesting scene. You could look it up, Ashley. But I think that's such a picture of the eyes of aspiration, and eyes that don't see with faith are going to be clouded in life. And I think Scripture consistently warns us of the danger of seeing what is good to the eyes. When Adam, when Eve is tempted by the snake, what does the snake do? He's an aspirational marketer. The snake lifts up the apple and it says in the text, or whatever it was, it says in the text... So when the woman saw that the tree saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. So Eve saw that the tree was good for food it was a delight to the eyes. Satan held out an aspiration. You're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. And Eve saw that, saw it was delightful to the eyes. And took, and that is a, a warning for us all that things that seem lovely and seem to be a delight to the eyes can be death to the soul. So beware of worldly aspiration. First uh, John, we're told, do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't do that. Don't love the world or the things in it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The lust of the world, the lust of the flesh, and the, and the pride of life. Now, after this, Lot separates. He's going to do his own thing. 
But the Lord comes down. And as a child of God, I, I see such an analogy here. A child of God should see specifically, and I would argue only, what God places in his view. In, chapter, in verse 14, it says that, Ab, that the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look to the place where you are. Interestingly, Lot, when he lifts up his eyes, he does it by himself. And he looks with aspiration. When Abram lifts up his eyes, he does it because he's told to. And he looks at what the Lord has promised him and told him to keep in view. And then the Lord has him survey the land and walk around the land of promise. So, this is a contrast for us. And this contrast puts before you what aspirational eyes are going to look like and compares it with what I think are eyes of faith and a settled rest and confidence in the Lord. So, um, Christian, you can be non-anxious because the Lord has promised you great things. He has promised that he will supply all your needs. He has promised to take you from death to life. He has promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. You can believe that or you can reject that. The key to non-anxious living in Christ is to almost naively trust in the promises of God. And he will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. And God will always intervene as he did in Jesus Christ to save you even from your foolishness like you did with Abraham. Let's close in a word of prayer.